Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 25. Gunpowder, Treason, and Plot. My lord, out of the love I bear to some of your friends, I have a care for your preservation. Therefore, I would advise you, as you tend to your life, to devise some excuse to shift your attendance at this parliament. For God and man hath concurred to punish the wickedness of this time. And think not slightly of this advertisement, but retire yourself into your country, where you may expect the event in safety. For though there be no appearance of any stir, yet I say they shall receive a terrible blow, this parliament, and yet they shall not see who hurts them. An excerpt from the Monteagle letter. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft podcast. And can you believe it? 25 episodes. That's a milestone as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it pales in comparison with many others, of course, but still it's an achievement. Anyway, last time, and the time before that, we covered the prevalence of the supernatural in the plays of Shakespeare and his contemporaries. This week, however, we return to the narrative we've been on since first revisiting Tudor England, which we have followed up to the death of Elizabeth. This also continues from an earlier narrative, where we covered the life of the young James VI of Scotland, and his adventurous life fending off plots and conspiracies both mundane and magical. Last time we saw him, his kingdom was undergoing another series of trials for witchcraft up and down the eastern coast of Scotland, as he was putting the finishing touches to his witchcraft treatise, Demonology. Yet, with the death of the childless Elizabeth, he now received the windfall that had taken years of negotiations and diplomacy. He succeeded Gloriana to the thrones of England and Ireland for the first time, uniting the three kingdoms of the British Isles into one person. Sort of like a personal union. Yes, that sounds like a good phrase that I just made up. So this week, we will continue the story of both England and James, covering the more noteworthy periods of his rule and more or less setting the stage for us to consider the witch trials that would dot his English reign. So let us begin with the events of James's life post-1603. James was proclaimed King of England on the 24th of March, 1603, a few hours after Elizabeth's death, in a move that helpfully forestalled any confusion or worry over the lack of an immediate successor. James prepared to make his way south to accept his new crown, but before leaving, he promised his Scottish subjects that he would return to them once every three years. It's worth saying that he broke this promise only returning once again in 1617, but then again he was very busy. 
His coronation was on the 25th of July, and one of his immediate concerns was ending the Anglo-Spanish War, which had been raging since 1585, which he successfully ended in 1604. James's early reign was dominated with conspiracies against him, famously with the gunpowder plot in 1605, but also the lesser-known plots of the main plot and the by plot in 1603. The main and by plot were tried together, and were essentially plans to either replace James with his cousin, Arabella Stuart, supported by the Spanish government, or to motivate the king to relax restrictions on practising Catholics and Puritans, both of which suffered from fines due to not attending Anglican Communion. From what I can see, these plots intended to act against James during his progress south, with one's conspirator taking strength from the Scottish precedent of seizing the person of the king for political purposes. As we saw during the earlier episodes on James, it seems like he was always at risk of being kidnapped or his palace attacked by his nobles. Either way, the plot didn't get very far. At least one man, who had been approached to join the plot and declined, had informed the royal entourage of the threat, and some members of the plot were in fact playing both sides. A couple of people were executed, and a number were imprisoned in the Tower of London, including Sir Walter Raleigh, who had been implicated, although his actual role is suspected. Sir Walter would survive this brush with the King's justice, but his implication in the plot soured the King's opinion towards him, which would cost him later. Possibly the most famous event during James's life, at least that I remember from school, was the gunpowder plot of 1605. Having given up hope of greater tolerance under the new king, a group of dissident English Catholics led by Robert Catesby planned to detonate 36 barrels of gunpowder in the House of Lords during the state opening. In attendance would be many bishops of the Anglican Church in their capacity as lords, senior English judges, many of the Protestant aristocracy, the king's close relatives, and the king himself. With one stroke, Catesby's plan would decapitate the Protestant English state and allow the second part of the plot to take place, the abduction and crowning of James's daughter, Princess Elizabeth, as the new Catholic monarch. Now, since we're talking about the gunpowder plot and not the fiery death of hundreds of people, it's safe to assume that the plan didn't go off without a hitch or two. For starters, an outbreak of plague delayed the opening of Parliament from February to October. And in July, the opening was delayed another month, to the memorable date of Tuesday the 5th of November. The gunpowder that had been collected for the plot had now decayed to an unusable state, and new barrels had to be found. Most damning of all for the conspirators, a letter was received by William Parker, the 4th Baron Monteagle, which warned him against attending the opening of Parliament. I read an excerpt of this earlier on, but who originally wrote this letter is unknown. It could have been a friendly conspirator concerned about the death of a Catholic lord, a family member such as his brother-in-law, or even himself, in order to gain favour with the king by discovering a plot against his life. Whoever wrote the letter, Monteagle immediately took it to Whitehall and gave it to the Earl of Salisbury, who conferred with the King's court while James himself was away hunting. When James returned on the 1st of November, a search was ordered of the Houses of Parliament. Accounts differ, but the King's account states that the first search, on the 4th of November, found a large pile of firewood and a serving man called John Johnson. John Johnson was not the man's real name. His name was Guy Fawkes, 
Aha! I hear you shout. They caught him in the act. Well, hold your horses. For Mr. John Johnson managed to convince the agents that he was merely a servant of Thomas Percy, a man known to the king. The royal agents left, and so did Fawkes. Although Percy's name aroused suspicion, he had fallen from favour and was known to be a Catholic, having previously petitioned James to ease restrictions on his brothers in faith. So, the king ordered a second search later that night and found John Johnson yet again, dressed for travelling and holding a lantern, a pocket watch and fire-starting equipment. The royal agent seized forks and uncovered the barrels of gunpowder from under the kindling, the conspiracy quickly unraveled. Many of the plotters were captured, although some were killed in the process, including ringleader Catesby, as well as Thomas Percy. Those caught, Guy Fawkes among them, were found guilty of high treason and sentenced to the traitor's death, to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. Now, I don't think I've actually covered what hanging, drawing, and quartering actually entailed on this show, and it is certainly up there with some of the more unusual and gruesome methods of execution we've seen meted out. Those men condemned to such a fate, because they were always men, were tied to a wooden slat or panel, and dragged by a horse to the place of their execution through jeering crowds. This was the drawn part. They were then hanged by the neck, but not to either snap their neck or suffocate them to death. No, the hanged part was not meant to kill them. That was for the quartering. After being choked almost to death, the semi-conscious convict was castrated, his pieces held in front of his eyes and then burnt, before being disemboweled, his guts also held in front of his face before too being burnt. And finally, the condemned faced the mercy of the axe, his head decapitated. The body was then cut into quarters, and usually these pieces were distributed to certain notable places, their home village or town, the gates of the city, the place of their crime, etc. So yeah, this was certainly not a nice way to go. With the exception of Fawkes himself, who managed to jump from the gallows and snap his own neck, ending his life relatively cleanly, his fellow conspirators and those caught up in the act faced this fate in its entirety. So with that sordid business done, where do we stand? Well, Parliament is well and truly intact, and with it, a load of MPs who are, conveniently enough for them, not scattered across central London like so much confetti. Now, you would imagine that this brush with death, foiled by the king and his agents, would make for a grateful and malleable parliament. Well, if you did imagine, then you would be wrong. There is some gratitude, of course, but by no means is parliament the king's footstool, and James's entire reign was to be rife with conflicts with parliament. James wanted to unite the kingdoms of England and Scotland into one, the Kingdom of Great Britain, and began styling himself as such, only for Parliament, to really not like the idea. James, though, kept calling himself King of Great Britain anyway, regardless of what Parliament said. When James began to run out of money in 1610, he went to Parliament to demand more money, in a scheme known as the Great Contract, where Parliament would grant a lump sum of £600,000 as well as a regular annual income of £200,000. In return, the King would make ten concessions to Parliament. However, these negotiations took the entire year, from February until the 31st of December, when James grew so frustrated that he dismissed Parliament. It took four years for James to come around to the idea that maybe he should call another parliament, if only because the cupboards were looking awfully bare. 
Sir James called another parliament, demanded money, and promptly dissolved it after nine short weeks when parliament got uppity. He proceeded to rule without parliament for the next seven years, bolstering his failing finances through the creation and selling of titles to the highest bidder, and avoiding the very idea of war like he owed it money. When the Thirty Years' War broke out, James wished to assist his son-in-law, however, the elector palatine Frederick V and his daughter Elizabeth. Like a stuck record, Parliament again refused to give him anywhere near the amount of money a military expedition would require. Instead of supporting James in a war against Habsburg Austria and her allies, Parliament insisted on a war against Habsburg Spain instead, which was already a belligerent in the Thirty Years' War. One reason for this splitting of hairs that I've seen is that war with Austria would be costly and was too far away. Whereas war with Spain, well, Spain was just a short voyage down the coast and they had these lovely shipments of gold that were ever so profitable during the Anglo-Spanish War. Spain was a more present rival for Parliament than far away Austria. The anti-Catholic sentiment that grew in England following the outbreak of the Continental Conflict led to a petition for Prince Charles, the future king, to cease wooing the Spanish princess Maria Anna and instead marry a good Protestant girl. James's response is telling. He had the petition ripped from the record book and threatened Parliament with consequences if they continued interfering with his royal prerogative. Then he dissolved it again. James's fixation with maintaining the peace with Spain dominated his English reign until his death. As I alluded to just now, Charles had been one of the bargaining chips in this diplomatic game, in the form of a marriage proposal between the prince and the infanta, Maria Anna. Astutely, James dragged out the negotiations for a number of years, since negotiation was just as effective as sealing the deal as far as keeping the peace was concerned. So important was Spain's opinion that Sir Walter Raleigh died to keep the Spaniards sweet. Raleigh had rotted in the Tower of London since his implication in the main plot at the accession of James, but in either 1616 or 1617, the king saw fit to pardon him, and granted him permission to continue his career as an explorer and privateer. Except, not against the Spanish. Well, Raleigh duly set off to discover the fabled city of El Dorado, arriving in Venezuela. This is where everything went wrong for the English national icon, if the previous 15 years in captivity doesn't count. Against Raleigh's orders, a fraction of his men set off under the command of his friend, Lawrence Chemis, and attacked a Spanish outpost on the Orinoco River. In this attack, Raleigh's son Walter was shot and killed. His friend returned to Raleigh and begged forgiveness, and when he did not receive it, Chemis shot and stabbed himself to death. Did I mention that part of Raleigh's pardon was dependent on him not antagonising the Spanish by attacking their convoys or their settlements? Oh yes, I did, didn't I? Well, Raleigh returned to England in disgrace. His son was dead, his best friend betrayed him, and then took his own life in a gruesome way, the attack on the settlement hadn't even worked, and Spain was now gunning for him. Oh, and he never did find El Dorado. Upon his return, the Spanish ambassador demanded that Raleigh's original sentence of death be reinstated. After all, he had broken the terms of his pardon. James agreed, although depending on who you ask, he did so either reluctantly or without much fuss, depending on whether he still held Raleigh's involvement in the main plot against him. Either way, Raleigh accepted his death. 
he passed up chances to escape and went to the block with a calm confidence. Commenting on the headsman's axe, he said, This is a sharp medicine, but it is a physician for all diseases and miseries. Sir Walter Raleigh was beheaded at the Palace of Westminster on the 29th of October, 1618, after less than two years at liberty. Raleigh was an English national icon even then, and so James's seeming willingness to execute him on the orders of the Spanish further hurt his image. James was consistent in his desire to keep Spain on good terms, only for his son Charles to mess it all up. Not when he became king himself, though. Oh, no, 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 no. Charles was far too eager to get stuck into this whole international diplomacy shtick. Taking a leaf out of his father's book, Charles decided that instead of waiting for his future wife to come to him, he would go to her. When James sailed to Denmark, he had been 23, and in 1623, Charles was 22, and together with the Duke of Buckingham, he travelled to Spain to woo the Spanish Infanta in person. This is where the similarities with his father's romantic adventure end. After travelling all this way, and after several years of negotiation, it turns out that Maria Anna despised Charles. He was, after all, a heretic of the Catholic Church. Also, Charles had told no one of his intention to go in person, arriving incognito, so the Infanta, the Spanish King Philip IV, and the English Ambassador were all less than overjoyed to find a prince on their doorstep. Charles, who apparently knew nothing of the Infanta's opinion of Protestants, faced humiliation on his arrival in Madrid. The Spaniards demanded the repeal of English anti-Catholic laws and pushed for Charles's conversion to Catholicism. Charles and Buckingham returned to England empty-handed, the Infanta having remained in Spain, but received a warm welcome from the anti-Spanish kingdom. The returning prince, who had left one of the strongest proponents of the Spanish match and opponents of Parliament's interference, now called for war with Spain and a French marriage arrangement instead. Prevailing on James to call another Parliament, which echoed Charles's call for war and welcomed his change of heart, James was nevertheless resolute. There would be no war with Spain while he still reigned. The fallout of this failed adventure was threefold. The English ambassador, John Digby, the first Earl of Bristol, was recalled in disgrace. Charles had thoroughly turned away from Spain as a possible ally, and Parliament had committed themselves to financing a war against Spain. At least, they had in Charles's mind, which is what mattered to a prince who held the divine right of kings as a resolute fact. Now, I'm sure that won't cause any sort of discord later on. James would rule until his death in March 1625, after suffering a stroke, dysentery, and possibly malaria, which is not a nice combination whichever way you look at it. His reign in England had been remarkably peaceful, which would only become more admirable after Charles's rule led the kingdom into a number of disastrous, embarrassing, and expensive military campaigns, his peacefulness was just as much to do with avoiding calling a parliament, though, as James was an absolutist in every way, and this attitude had been taught to his heir. So now we've covered the more general events of James's English reign, we can turn our attention to the treatment and prosecution of witches in Jacobean England. James was, after all, one of the most zealous advocates of witch trials in Europe, and certainly the most well-written monarch on the topic. 
He had overseen witch trials in his native Scotland throughout the 1590s, beginning with the North Berwick trials and up until the publication of his demonology in 1597. This is all old hat to those of you who remember the episodes on James last year, but I repeat myself because I want to make clear how great the contrast is between James of the 1590s and how he ruled in England. Because despite initially overseeing the enactment of even stricter witchcraft acts in 1604 that brought English law up to the harshness of the Scottish 1563 Act, James's accession to the English throne was not one of wild witch hunts on the scale of North Berwick or those throughout North East Scotland in 1597. So let us begin with that Witchcraft Act, the Witchcraft Statute of 1604. If any person or persons shall use, practice, or exercise any invocation or conjuration of any evil or wicked spirit, or shall consult, covenant with, entertain, employ, feed, or reward any evil or wicked spirit, to or for any intent or purpose, or take any dead man or child out of his or her grave, or the skin, bone, or any other part of any dead person to be employed or used in any manner of witchcraft, sorcery, charm, or enchantment, or shall use, practice, or exercise any witchcraft, enchantment, or sorcery, whereby any person shall be killed, destroyed, wasted, consumed, pined, or lamed in his or her body, or any part thereof, shall suffer the pains of death. At first glance, this seems similar to the pre-existing Elizabethan Act of 1563, and not just in its rambling nature, but there are some new additions and changes to the wording. For starters, a new offence was added, that of grave robbery with the intent to use the body parts of cadavers in spells. This became punishable by death. The punishments were heightened for activities already criminalised under the Elizabethan Act, such as injuring a person or property with sorcery. Under Elizabeth, only your second offence would warrant execution. Under James, the first conviction for magical injury was a death sentence. Where Elizabethan crimes warranted death in the first instance, the 1604 Act somehow managed to make the ultimate penalty even harsher. Where someone convicted of murder through magical means would have been executed during Elizabeth's reign, James extended the charge to, quote, aiders, abettors, and counsellors. Intending, but failing to injure, kill, or seduce a person through magical means faced similar punishments under both acts, that of one year imprisonment. But on the second conviction, James's act called for death, while Elizabeth's demanded life imprisonment. Alan McFarlane does point out that the conditions in the English jails at this time were so poor that imprisonment was often just as lethal as a death sentence, especially for elderly or infirm convicts. Similarities between the acts are common, though, and it isn't the case that the 1604 Act massively expanded the crimes and punishments related to witchcraft. As far as I can tell, the only addition is that of the grave robbing. Everything else was already a crime under Elizabeth, but now the punishments had been strengthened. For example, just as under the Elizabethan Act, spouses and heirs of the convicted largely had their goods specifically protected under the law, when felons commonly had their property confiscated. Both acts specified that those subject to execution lost the rights of clergy and sanctuary, the two ways to either avoid punishment or at least have it lessened somewhat, 
and in the general pardons of both James and Elizabeth, witchcraft convicts were specifically accepted from such mercy. Now, the debate over James's involvement in this tightening of witchcraft laws is debated on the grounds that the English establishment had a number of high-profile advocates of witch trials, most notably Sir Edward Coke and Sir Edmund Anderson, who we last saw in the episode on Elizabeth's reign. James's opinion undoubtedly played a role, but it's important to remember that he was not operating in a vacuum. English civil servants and courtiers were still in position from the time of Elizabeth, and James could not simply rock up in London and have his will enacted, as we saw earlier. But what James's opinion really was is even more debated. In my own opinion, James was as strong an advocate for witch trials as any in the 1590s, and yet his bloodthirstiness appears to have waned in the later years of his life, as we shall see next time when we take a look at the most notable witch trials during James's reign, and the changing opinion of the devil's greatest enemy, towards the trials of the suspected servants of the devil. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. Financial support is always welcome and can be given at patreon.com slash historyofwitchcraft. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.